Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. On this week's segment of Women Who Code Talks Tech, we have Hina Sakazaki, software engineer of Dialogflow NLU at Google. She'll be talking about adapting ML research to make training AI for games fun. Enjoy. So first things first, for all research to market project ideas, there needs to be some explanation on why machine learning is how you solve a specific problem in today's world. And thank you, Sapphire. <laughs> Uh, first, let me know, let me give you an idea of why we thought working on a machine learning service for game developers was a good idea. Well, game development is bigger and more accessible than ever. With free-to-use game engines and assets, technological advancements such as procedural generations for levels, indie-friendly publishers, and a large audience of gamers on various devices. And game developers around the world are generating enormous game experiences that players explore through hundreds of hours of play on various devices. So to deliver that, the experience, what do game developers do? In addition to making the games, games must be tested before they are released to the world to iron out any bugs before they are found by players. And those bugs are found via a manual QA process where a large number of people just simply play the game to find bugs. And that gets more complicated as the game has more elements, like what about multiplayer, a vast world with multiple combinations of environmental factors that shape the gameplay, complex skill and items trees, different OSs. And this QA is a bottleneck in the process, which is unable to scale with the complexity of these modern games. And it, delay, it leads to delayed launches, lower quality products, and they're just huge money sinks. So our team at Google Research had a goal to create a product that directly re addresses this imbalance by creating a service that allows game developers to train an AI that can play and test their games at scale quickly and easily. And while there are tons of research in AI that orients itself around playing video games, this problem came with requirements that were very different from one's researchers face. And that's what I like to focus on today. So yeah, here are some restrictions that we faced. We had to restrict where the games are run. So game companies have strict requirements on where their binaries are run, while machine learning researchers often run their target game and machine learning code in the same data center. We had to build a service, and oftentimes researchers don't have to make build services. And we had to build the service for a specific audience which was game developers who often don't have experience working with machine learning and expect us to provide APIs that are simulation centric, not data centric. We also built for an existing ecosystem. So it's not just a one-off thing, one-off experiment. Our service had to fit in the production requirements of the game development where a game developer could quickly train the AI iteratively as their game evolved. And so as you probably know, most research projects are centered around a core question and a hypothesis, which is really simple in concept, but requires a lot of innovation and pushing the envelope to make happen. For a real product, it's more about understanding the requirements and people who you are building for. And like with any problem with constraints, we broke it down and figured out solutions piece by piece, flexing the solutions as we went. 
So in this talk, I'll be breaking it down to high-level architecture. So how does a service work? Sharing game state. So how, does, how can a game developer share what's going on in their game? Learning to play the game. So tying the whole thing together by creating a process that works for game developers to train an AI that can play the game competently quickly. And finally, practical necessities. So some little stories about how we got feedback from game developers and built something just for them to make sure that our solutions works for them. And then we'll wrap it up with takeaways. takeaways. And the order I present these and solutions that came with are really not chronologically happened. It didn't chronologically happen in real life, especially around sharing game state and learning to play the game. A lot of the decisions were made early to solidify the product experience while we continued exploration and added more features as we went. Cool, so let's first talk about high-level architecture. Where do all the action happen? The first thing that we had to solve for was our target games not running in our data centers or even any data center at all. Game developers are quite cautious about where their game binaries are run on, and those locations are not guaranteed to have performant equipment. So the game could be run on the developer's machine, the game company's cloud VMs, game consoles or mobile phones, all with varying capabilities. And the core requirement when an AI plays a game is that it must do so interactively. So the game state is provided as an input to the AI, and the AI calculates output actions that then feed into the game. And in order to play the game interactively, the process must happen within 33 milliseconds. And for an AI to learn to play the game, processing data and training the AI requires a substantial amount of computing power. So the intersection of these requirements meant that we only had a few ways we could solve the problem. So for example, training and running the AI on the game developer's machine would inevitably limit the quality of the AI due to computation requirements. Training is expensive depending on the magnitude of the data we train on and the algorithms used because there's extensive mathematical operations that are happening on the data provided to generalize a multi-dimensional rule that the AI uses to make decisions. Whereas training and running the AI on the cloud and having the AI play the game through the public internet would lead to latency problems and that hinders the synchronicity of the game state and AI actions. So running the AI isn't running, just running the AI is not as computationally extensive because it's just a matter of taking the real-time data, running through that, that running through, running that through the rule that was created, created in the training step and then acting on the results. But the game happens in real time, not as a human would play. So imagine the game state being shared across the internet, going to the cloud, the AI makes a decision, that decision coming back to the machine that's playing the game, and so on, back and forth, and imagine some network flicks along the way. It's just not an accurate representation of how games are played, and we shouldn't be training on that inaccurate data to learn how to play that game. And we solved this problem by implementing the actor-learner pattern, which splits the AI into two parts. The actor, which plays the game, and the learner, which figures out how to play the game. So the actor playing the game runs the AI, which takes input from the game and generates output to play the game. And then we place our actor in the client machine as an SDK. So SDK is a software development kit, which is integrated by the game developers into their game to share their game state and feed the actions from the AI into their game. While under the hood, it would communicate with our service, the learner. And to learn to play the game, the training the AI happens in the learner, where game data is processed through intensive mathematical computation to learn behaviors. And we placed our learner in the cloud, which could be scaled to multiple specialized cost-efficient machines hidden away from game developers. 
And as you can see in this diagram, the actor updates the on-device model to be better or try new things while continuously batching and sending data to learn from, from the gameplay happening in real, life, real time. And yeah, this is called the actor-learner pattern. It's a proven and well-known architecture in applied machine learning. And getting a little bit more detail, zooming in. So for the actor portion, we decided to use a set of tools called TensorFlow Lite or TF Lite. TF Lite prides itself on low latency, high performance, and a small binary size, all of which are important for running ML models on device with limited capabilities. So it made a lot of sense for us to try TF Lite for our actor portion. Our model would be generated on the learner side, transferred over via public internet to the machine running the game, where we unpack it and load the model to a model that can be run through TF Lite tools. And yeah, if you're interested in the details, you can look at the open the code in the open source project and learn about the real world application of tools like TF Lite. Cool. And another library we used was TF Agents, which is a library that wraps TensorFlow and allows us to define specs to train our model in agent-centric ways. So as you can see on the right side, we ended up using behavioral cloning agent for a production AI. But we experimented with various RL algorithms. I won't go into too much detail here, but like a soft actor critic or proximal policy optimization agents. These are all RL algorithms. And TF agents, the, li the library, made it easy for us to swip swap in and out of these algorithms without having us, having us to implement them. Cool. So with that, the actor-learner architecture allows our learner to train models from game data. But the question is, what is the game data that we send? What information do we send to the learner to train an AI effectively? So one idea that maybe a lot of people can come up with is game developers could just send raw pixel data for each frame of the game, like just screenshots, right? Well, machine learning researchers have done this repeatedly with old school Atari games to benchmark machine learning techniques. But the complexity of high resolution modern games makes it impractical to learn using this methodology. Hope that makes sense. On the other end of the spectrum, our service could ask game developers to directly define the data-centric uh, features that they want the AI to learn from, representing them in data types required by machine learning libraries such as TensorFlow. Well, this would defeat our goal to make a service that is easy to use for game developers with no machine learning experience. So our solution was for game developers to provide data about their game through a game-centric API specifying first observations. So those are game state that the player sees at any given moment in time, like, oh, the enemy is there or the wall is here. And then actions, which are logical interactions that the player can perform, like walk left, jump, stuff like that. And then rewards are numerical values that tell the AI how well it's doing, like got three points or lost two points. So with the observations figured out, those three types figured out, our next challenge was defining observations for a service to efficiently learn the game from. So there are definitely many ways to describe a game, but we want the versions that are the most efficient to learn from so that training the AI takes the least amount of effort and time for game developers. So take a look at the picture on the right. Based on the game logic, you know how it's implemented in the code, it might be tempting to put the map of the world in observations. So like that, what I mean by that is like the yellow goal is at seven, two, the blue player is at four, six. But what would a person playing the game say? Well, they would probably say, oh, there's a goal directly ahead of me, five degrees to the left. So imagine, you know, zooming into a first person view, people would say, oh, there's a goal ahead of me, 
the yellow goal five degrees to the left. So what, what is more efficient to learn from? It turns out that the latter, where we're representing the game as a person would say, is more generalizable to learn from. So regardless of the different specific coordinates you may be at, the action is still the same. Keep walking ahead or keep steering to the left. So rather than learning multiple sets of situations and letting machine learning figure out that they all require the same action, it was much more effective to, effective to reduce that extra step and strip away details that don't directly contribute to the action you take and focus on the ones that, that do. And we named this technique egocentric observations, which is representing game state relative to the controlled entity. And we advised our game developers to observe game state that way added APIs to help do those transformation automatically. So if game developers did want to share those 3D positions of different entities, like, you know, XYZ is the player, XYZ X plus one, you know, uh, Z is camera, goal, enemy, you know, we do the pre-processing to map it to these egocentric observations. And here's another feature we built to represent game state, feelers. So feelers are basically raycasts around the player entity detecting walls, enemies, floors, et cetera, and informs what is around the player in the game state. So raycasts, I guess if some of you are probably not game developers, if you don't know, it's just like physical light rays to detect if something has hit something, if something has been observed. Um, and we initially designed it to be able to distinguish the type of thing it hits, like oh, that, that's an enemy right there or wall right there, informing it to uh, make its distinct actions. But we found that more information wasn't necessarily better. So all of the games we integrated with, we ended up using just reporting the distances of these feelers rather than you know, checking what type it was. So we would just say if it hit something or not and the distance. And we'd experiment with different coverage for the feelers, like 360 all around, or just looking forward, or you know, how many feelers looking forward, all of those things. And behind the scenes, they become inputs to the convolutional, convolutional neural networks. And let me explain what that means. So the feelers, as discussed in the last slide, are inputs to the convolutional layers, which you can see in the diagram as the orange box on the left. And the outputs from these layers are layer is our inputs to the fully connected multi-layer neural network, which is a gray big box. And the large number of inputs to the fully connected neural network increases training latency and degrades AI quality, especially on limited samples, which is not something we want. So like in the example I was experiment, I was saying with experimenting with lots of raycast feelers around the player, it would actually increase the training latency and lower AI quality which is some, what we don't want. So we added additional pooling and padding layers. So pooling is technique to reduce output count and padding to control the number of outputs to fix the CNN output size to be four for anything more than four feelers. So even if you have 360 all around with you know 30 feelers or something, it would be the outputs of the convolutional layer would be only four. And as a result, our AI quality and training speed got better. And I also attached the link to the code that does this portion if you are curious. And yeah, such strategies to make learning more efficient with small limited samples may be considered shortcuts in the academic world. They were really worthwhile to achieve our goals with limited samples and compute power. Right, so now that game developers could describe their game, we needed to provide them with an AI that can play their game. So reinforcement learning where the AI learns to play a game autonomously through rewards and penalty signals was initially the obvious choice, has been the go-to technique to train AI that plays games like AlphaStar for StarCraft and OpenAI5 for Dota 2. 
After all, RL is basically how humans play games or do anything. We interact with the environment, get feedback, and keep trying things. The primary issue with RL for our requirements was that RL algorithms require order of more magnitudes, more data than our developers could provide, and also have unpredictable outcomes. For example, OpenAI 5 played 180 years of worth of games every day to learn to play Dota 2. Another non-trivial issue is that reward shaping or defining rewards and punishments is pretty tricky to get right, even for a machine learning expert. So this is like the last three points, got two points. A bad reward or punishment can easily confuse the AI at training. And we found that time spent, both spent it waiting for the AI to learn to play the game, you know, even to walk straight, for example, and exploring different sets of rewards to be really frustrating. So we would just sit there for hours looking at something that doesn't do anything. And it's not a good experience that we wanted our game developers to face. So instead, we found more success with a solution of learning by watching a human play rather than autonomously learning from reward signals. So we use the technique behavioral cloning, a method that applies supervised learning on state action pairs. Algorithmically, this is simpler than reinforcement learning in that we know the mapping of the desired state and action pairs and learn the, pattern, learn the pattern of it, rather than finding out if the state action pair was a good pair by getting punished or rewarded for it. And with this approach, game developers were able to generate AI that acted similarly to the player, the demonstration behavior provided at training. So for example, someone could send two minutes of examples playing the game for a task, navigate to a goal while avoiding obstacles, and the AI would be trained that can do roughly the same for similar levels reliably. And as the AI gets, it plays the game, it gets stuck when it encounters a situation that it hasn't seen before. To solve this, we utilize a technique called human in the loop training. In the human in the loop training, the game developer would watch the AI play the game. And when it starts behaving incorrectly, they could jump in and provide a demonstration of what to do in such situation, which is a flow that was made possible by the interactive nature of games. The additional data helps train higher quality AI that can handle those similar situations in the future. And this is like a fun flow for game developers. They would provide demonstrations, watch the AI play, correct it, and then you can see the AI succeed in similar situations where it failed before, completely in real time and interactively. So this is roughly coined as continuous imitation learning, and it's known for its sample efficiency, which is exactly what we wanted. Well, unfortunately, pure behavioral cloning only tells us how good the model is at predicting the state action mapping, not how good the AI is at playing the game. So to find that out, we added an additional autonomous learning step that the game developer could trigger, step away from their desk for a few hours, and come back to see the AI playing the game at a higher competence. So here's what happens in this step. The AI autonomously interacts with the environment, gathering success and failure metrics to learn which version of itself is best at playing the game. So this takes the concept of RL of making a decision based on a reward signal, but applies it as a, at a different layer at model selection. And the final version of the AI can be then used to run tests and detect bugs in, in the game. So here's a rough flow of how using the service might look like. So first you provide demonstration, which is really to say you play the game to demonstrate basic mechanics of the game. So like two rounds in a racetrack. Then you let the AI take over. So in this step, you have a status that you can read from the, from the SDK to, to tell you if a training com has completed on the data, all the data you have provided. So maybe you let it run until training completes, 
watch it play, see it make mistakes, correct them, watch, watch it complete training, so on. Or you can even provide corrections before the training completes because there will be draft versions of the model returned ready to play. So as you provide more data, we trigger more training that weighs all of the data equally. So eventually when, when all the training completes, we would have trained on all versions of the AI ready to evaluate. And uh, for the training completion, training completion was determined by the learner to see if the behavioral cloning scores had not improved for four models or so. So this isn't accurate. Uh, how good is it at playing the game? It's more like, how is it good at uh, detecting the state action mapping? So it's more of like a correct, correct, correct kind of check rather than is it actually playing the game? And once you see that the AI is pretty good at playing the game, the training complete phase is complete. And then you let it run on the evaluation mode where you had defined the success binary and the timeout and let the AI play the game autonomously while using versions of itself. So while you can step away from your desk and go home for the day. And when you come back in the next morning, the best version of the model has been decided and outputted. And now you can use this version to run future tests for multiplayer dev testing or whatever you might want. And there are various ways to do this flow. Like you can train some, take a snapshot, add more training, and then evaluate or evaluate, go back to the training snapshot, do more training and do, do evaluation before getting to the last inference stage. And during inference, there's no training. It's just running the best model of itself that it determined. It, that's just what it's running. Right, so that was it for the general system and how we made it work. Now I'd like to share some stories about how we built features on demand as requests were made from game developers we worked with. Games, as with any time-tested software, is something that has been built through computer history fighting against lots of resource constraints. So it's really no surprise that game developers implement their own memory management system. That's to say they don't use whatever is provided by the language by default, but they have more control layers to cleverly optimize, like deallocate things prematurely or allocate and, and so on. Our SDK, which is something I haven't gotten too much into detail in this talk, is what the game developer integrate with to share their data with and run the AI. So it's a component that talks to our service. The SDK portion is the actor portion. Uh, we had a few options for this, and we went with a dynamic library for Windows C++ because we weren't comfortable with sharing the source code. The dynamic library meant that the SDK code is dynamically linked with the program code, and the objects created by the SDK are allocated by the SDK code separately from the application, so the game's objects. But this meant that objects that were passed across the API boundaries had some tricky things to deal with. So in the example on the right, this is brain.h or one of the header functions in the SDK, which is compiled in the context of the game application. So when the brain ID is allocated through the function inside of the SDK, thus using the SDK allocator, it would be returned to the application or the game code to deallocate, which doesn't have the same information as the SDK allocator. So basically the application deallocator would be assuming based on their memory management that they can simply deallocate the object based on their information, the information they have, but instead reads garbage at the expected location and then crashes the program. We don't want crashes while running our running games with our SDK, obviously. So after we encountered these issues, the debugging with game developers, we decided we needed to implement an emergency feature. So I implemented a global allocate free override function. So basically the game developer defines their own allocation functions, which reports to their mem memory management system and passes that through our set API which then sets those custom functions as callbacks to the global generic delete NU functions. 
And with this feature fully integrated with a game that used a custom memory management system, we were able to run the game without any crashes, which is totally crucial for getting anything working. So moving on to another feature request. With our early access partners, we had basically white glove support, which is to say that we held their hand through the whole process. They wrote the code, but we met with them almost every day for the initial months and debugged their AI with them. But that's not really sustainable or scalable if you're building a tool for game developers to work with on their own. Plus there was, you know, with COVID, there was a lot of time difference for a lot of these game teams and us. And over video, we didn't want to sit for hours on video conferencing and work with, through problems with them. So for any tool, any service you're building, it's good to have tooling to support your customers. Here's a screenshot of our debug visualization tool. The goal is to double check the data that they sent our to our service and that to be available to the game developers. Like if they've de defined observations that they thought were it was correct, but turned out there was a bug on their side that caused our AI to get confused. So you can see stuff like um, distance to objective. So that's like the distance of the player to the objective number go up and down as well as the scene view on the right, which is showing what was detected by the feelers. And there are real concrete examples of issues we discovered through this tool. So one was invisible geometry or fake geometry seen by feelers. So for example, in navigation, feelers detect the distances of what is around the player. And that's really important for learning navigation. One time there was an object in the map that was not detected by humans, but detected by the detection code, which shaped the way the AI played the game because they'd always avoid that spot. And we we're like, why is it avoiding that spot? Well, it turns out there was a uh, object, like a cube or something that wasn't, that was just clear and transparent and not seen by the actual humans. Another one, expert player making decisions based on information that's not, that the agent can't see. So when you train an AI to play the game, it's really important to know that they can only learn from what you send them. So like something like sound, oh, here are footsteps, I gotta run away. Like if you're not sending that data that there's footsteps, then um, you shouldn't be playing the game based on those footsteps that you hear. You should probably not listen to those. So this tool was a good reminder of what data our service actually got to learn from rather than what the player can see or hear. Another one was actions not plugged in correctly. So say you were like jump, 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 jump across the time of the some episode. And you're like, oh, I think I jumped then. And then you can check back on the timeline view and see is the jump uh, Boolean on at all of those times and double check, send you to check your, your implementation. Another issue we encountered was transform issues. So uh, in our, one of our partners games, their z-axis was our y-axis, which messed up our egocentric observations feature, the, the feature that I talked about that maps the 3D view into egocentric observations. And we were able to detect this issue using the scene view. So needless to say, this tool helped out a ton and we built it ourselves. Yeah, and so basically what I take away from this is that building a real world product means prioritizing real world problems. Oftentimes we have to know what's going on before improving the AI quality. And the custom allocator made it possible to move past the step of having your SDK work with a real game and not crash. And the debug tool makes sure that companies can rapidly iterate with minimum support from our side. Cool, so let's recap on everything we covered today. Building a machine learning service can be intimidating with the sheer velocity of research in the field, especially when real world requirements diverge from academic assumptions. 
we had the unique constraints of not having access to the game binary, needing to make the tool work for game developers with no ML experience, and actually training the AI to play the game in a way that works with the game development workflow. To solve these, we utilized proven techniques such as continuous imitation learning being very sample efficient, took what might be considered shortcuts in academia like egocentric observations, and applied basic principles in different layers like the evaluation mode selection, evaluation model selection mode, which was heavily inspired by RL. To build a product for a real audience, you can't just simply copy what a research paper has done. You really have to pick and choose different techniques at sometimes unexpected layers to accomplish an ideal experience for your audience. And finally, let's not forget that a real product needs to work for real customers. So it requires you to build what's necessary to make it work with those real customers. In the Women Who Code Career Nav segment of our show, you'll hear real world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. These talks will include both career advice as well as a look at the industry itself and its practices. On this week's segment of Women Who Code Career Nav, we have a talk entitled Bystander to Upstander and LGBTQIA Inclusion with Casey Watts, founder of Happy and Effective. All right, I'm going to use the term affected people in this talk to refer to anyone negatively affected by policies or social norms or microaggressions. And I'm using that instead of what you might say is the offended person or the hurt person, because they might, or might not be offended or hurt. And I'm not necessarily talking about discrimination and all the connotations that come with that. But like, if you say something that could have hurt someone, could have been a microaggression, I'm going to say it's an unaffected person. And it's all based on the classes and traits that you hear of all the time. Um, there's a lot of them that we need to explicitly opt into supporting if we want to support them. Um, another thing about the word affected people I'm using is they're directly affected because everyone's affected by racism and bigotry. Uh, but there's one person affected more by it, and that's whoever is receiving the racism or bigotry directly. All right, so that's just a term I'm going to use. It's just my word. In general, for the, all the protected classes on the left, that's protected by like civil rights laws in the US. But there's a lot of things we care about for inclusion in tech communities like Women Who Code, including skill level socioeconomic background, and a bunch of others. So protected classes is like hand wavy, a lot of them, but of course there's more. They're really just traits that people have. And you could discriminate someone based on any trait, even the color of their hair. It wouldn't be so surprising. Context is really important. This is what it might feel like to you if you're trying to be a good ally. You're first like, okay, all right, self, don't let your biases and stereotyping instincts win. Instead, treat people like individuals. Yeah, got it. Right, right. All right. But don't ignore their background experiences. Like if they're made fun of for being gay in the locker room, don't ignore that part. They're an individual, but they're in a context. And then don't ask them about their background experience. And if you do, be careful about it because you don't want them to do emotional labor. And then it's instead just be good and know everything already. Just be magic. Like it's just like kind of hard to navigate. You're like bumping walls left and right. And you're trying to be the best person you can be. And there's like mistakes you could make every step of the way. And how can you do your best? It's hard. I'm with you. I'm not making fun of anyone here. You're here because you want to learn and you want to help navigate this thing. I want to have the best understanding of someone else's experience, especially when they're affected by something that hurts them in some way. Uh, I want to avoid making any assumptions and letting my biases take play. That's content for another workshop. There's plenty to say about that. I do want to focus on their individual experiences. How do they feel when that was happening to them? 
but um, it's not helpful if we're just saying be colorblind. If they said it's hard for them, it's just hard for them, but it doesn't mean anything about the group they're in because it does, their context matters too. Um, I have a little story here. I got a haircut a year or two ago at a gay barber shop. It's gay because only gay people go there. It's like a gay gym. DC has that kind of thing anyway. It, it's a thing. And the woman cutting my hair kept making RuPaul's Drag Race references. And she was saying, yes, I love that hair and quoting this stuff to me. And I, when I sat down, I was like, I don't watch the show. I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't care about it. And she kept making the references the whole time. She was stereotyping me as a gay man who obviously would watch the show. And I was just like, the whole time, I didn't have any patience for her and I never went back. It, it, that is kind of benign compared to a lot of stereotyping that can happen too. But it, it kind of hurt. I didn't want to be lumped in with that culture that I'm not a part of. Not even that it's a bad culture, but it's not mine. I don't associate with going to gay bars and watching RuPaul's Drag Race. I just never liked it. I think they're catty and mean and I've got better stuff I want to do, like play instruments. Um, but anyway, she was just t- treating me like a member of my group and not like an individual, even though I literally told her, I don't want to hear about that. She kept talking about that. But um, it, colorblind is a great example for this one. You don't just want to focus on the individual experience and ignore the group either. <sighs> we got to focus on their experience and context. If someone's saying it was hard for me to get hired as a black man, in this job at a white company with no black people in it, and I'm not being treated well now that I'm here, it, you, it would be a mistake just to focus on, oh, you specifically and only you are having trouble because it has to do with their experience being a black man. And they're trying to tell you about their experience and you want to include that too. So the best is if you can treat them as an individual in the context they're in. And you're here today, I hope, to learn more about the LGBTQ context and how to navigate that and be a good ally to people and understand a little bit more about that to inform how you see people. Anyway, this is the mental framework I have, and this is why it's hard to talk about and navigate because it is stuff's going directions. <laughs> All right, how do we learn about someone's context? Say we got it, we wanna hear about that coworker's context so that we can relate to them better and understand them. Uh, of course, there's a lot of ways you can learn, articles and books and documentaries, that's the farthest from them, you can do that and they won't even know you're doing it and it just helps you and your understanding, but it's kind of depersonalized too. Uh, a little closer is workshops like this where people share stories and you know a friend of a friend who was affected and they, you might care about that a little bit more than an anonymous person. If you ask unaffected peers, that's a little bit closer. Like if you have a buddy at work or a friend you can talk to about race and gender issues, um, that's even better. And then the closest you can get to the people who experienced it are the people affected themselves but it's emotional labor for them. And you have to make sure you ask for consent and maybe lean on not just that one alone and do the other ones too. This probably isn't surprising to any of you here, but uh, what I wanna add here is ring theory from grief applies to this. The person is affected, they're in the center of this circle. Um, And in the grief theory, uh, in this theory, uh, people in the middle are most affected. Imagine someone's father passed away, the, the father's widow might be the most affected person there in the center. Any immediately family is in the next circle out because they're affected too, but less directly so because they weren't spouses with the person for so long. And then the outside family is even farther out and friends farther out from that. And so if you're going to ask what's going on, you don't go straight to the, the widow and ask her about it. You want to ask someone else further out because you don't want to... Um, ask her to do the emotional labor, but you can send support in. So like information out, context out, but then you can send support into the center. 
That applies to a lot of issues. We're going to go through the whole alphabet. Here's the simplest form, LGBT. Lesbian is a woman attracted to a woman. Gay is man attracted to man. Bi is anyone attracted to both genders or all genders, as it's more commonly used lately. It's like pansexual, but we don't say that as often. T is trans, meaning you are not the gender you are assigned at birth. And these are two buckets here, sexual orientation, who you're attracted to, and gender identity, who you are. And everything kind of goes in these two buckets anyway. It's who you're attracted to and who you are as a, a gender. If you add the Q, LGBTQ, Q is an umbrella. This is how it's used in the modern day. Q is an umbrella, uh, but it was a slur before. So some older queer people, as I might describe them myself in my head, don't like the word queer and they don't want to be called that. And that's okay too. I won't call them queer. Um, but in my head, anyone who's not cis, gendered and straight is queer. Anyone who's cisgender, meaning they were assigned male at birth and they are still male and they identify as male and everything or female and they're still that. And then straight, meaning they're attracted to the opposite gender. That's not queer people, but everyone else is queer. Everything else. More letters, I and A. I stands for intersex. I'll tell you a little more about that. It has to do with gender identity. And A is asexual or aromantic. And let's dig into those two because they're the less common ones. Intersex, um, how would you define gender? Some people say it's XY is a male and XX is female. That's one way you could describe it. But what if someone has not just those, they have three chromosomes, or if some part of the chromosome that determines which genitalia grow is swapped between them and they're not on the X and Y, that happens. There's a hundred examples of how gender is not actually so black and white. Um, another one is if you make testosterone, which you think, or you make a lot of testosterone, the amount that a man would, but you, your receptors for testosterone all around your body don't pick it up. And then you end up growing female reproductive organs. But you have the testosterone. So if you were going to say testosterone male, less testosterone female, that's not going to work for that person. So that's like all these gray areas. Intersex is the word for those. And you don't always know who's intersex because it's not a core part of their identity. But when we're talking about biology, this comes up a lot. And I'm sure some people it is part of their identity. But the people I know that I'm thinking of, and I'll introduce you to later, it's not necessarily front and center on their profiles. Um, all right, the A, LGBTQIA, stands for either or both asexual or aromantic. All right, to explain the difference between this, imagine someone who's super hot to you, but they're a mess, they don't do the dishes, they're like a criminal, they do terrible things, you don't wanna live with them forever and marry them, but maybe they're really attractive sexually. Or the opposite, someone you would live with. Um, I'm imagining like a friend of mine is a gay man who married a woman who he loved, but wasn't sexually attracted to, and they were together for years and had kids and they've since divorced amicably. So he was romantically attracted to her, but not sexually attracted to her. Both happen. And, and for some people, it's even part of their identity. Like they might be romantic, fully romantic, like the average person, but just asexual, they experience very little sexual attraction to anyone or the other way around where they are fully sexual, but they have no romantic attraction to anyone. And you yourself might be at 100% or 0% on any of these 
and maybe you've never thought about it before. I have a section later where I'll go through one question at a time for you to think to yourself. It's a spectrum from zero to 100, and gray and demi are words that help describe not zero, but not 100. It's probably closer to the lower side, close to the zero side. People use those. Um, and if it's not important to you to describe how sexual or how romantic you are in general, you don't need these terms, but some people do. And some people use these words to describe themselves. So people uh, for whom this is important to talk about with their friends and lovers and family, they end up needing to say it. And they probably start by saying long sentences describing how they feel. And then if they find a word anyone's ever used, even if it's obscure, they can help shorten that. Um, and so for me, I'll have you fill out um, like zero to tens for a bunch of things. And if it's interesting, if it's not quite at an extreme for you and you wanted to talk about it, you might need a word for it to come up with. There is history to each word. Um, if I think they've ebbed and flowed, there's more popular, less popular ones over time. And even if today, if someone said I'm demisexual, I'm not gonna assume I know what they mean because there's multiple definitions for each of them too. It's like mm -hmm. zero or like asexual might not mean zero for a lot of people. It might mean very little, like 5%. 10%, I don't know. And if that's the topic of conversation, I want to understand them better. I'll ask more questions. I'm just trying to get you exposed to the concepts behind the words really, but I'm starting with the words that are around just as your starting point. This is my personal mental model of LGBTQIA and gender identity and sexual romantic orientation. And you're probably building your own, especially as I'm giving you more terms here. Like, where do I put this? How do I think about that? How do they relate? I do want to talk a little bit here about the gender identity part on the left. So cis and trans and male, female, non-binary, and then this gender fluid and even more, a whole bunch of them. I'm not listing them all here. Those are all a gender identity. So that's how you feel inside. Imagine you are a man who was assigned female at birth because you had the androgen non-sensitivity thing I described. So they thought that's what you were, but you really have all this testosterone in your body. And anyway, what, for whatever reason you feel like a man, that's how you feel. But then you dress like a woman and okay, a little girl, cause you're a girl. And then you use she, her pronouns, but your gender identity does not match. That's called gender dysphoria. A lot of the time when you have to, and do have to present in ways that are not true to your true self. And uh, pronouns, we need pronouns cause we need to know how to refer to people in language and conversation. And gender expression happens because you have to wear clothes and present yourself in a bodily figure to people. So you are expressing your gender in some way. All clothes are some, some kind of gender expression. And they're both part of your gender identity, whether it matches or doesn't match. Whew. Concept, concept, concept. I can't wait to show you the examples. And then on the right there is who you're attracted to. So if you're straight or gay or lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, aromantic, any of those. All right, the examples. I think these will help a lot. I wanna tell you about me. So here is a little bit about me. I own an instrument in every color. I can play Lady Gaga's Bad Romance on all of them. Recently I picked up an accordion. This one's interesting. A lot of people don't talk this way. I'm culturally queer but not culturally gay. I already told you I don't watch RuPaul's Drag Race. I don't yass at people or things like a lot of mainstream gay men do. Uh, instead, I go to events like the queer trans fusion partner dancing events where people with every letter from LGBTQIA attend. Um, 
And like that space that's more queer is more my space than the gay one. Uh, sexually and romantically, I'm gay. I'm not attracted to women. I'm cisgendered. My gender identity is male. It matches what I was assigned to at birth. And my clothing style is not super masculine. I don't wear camo and boots all the time. I wear like tight fitting, bright yellow pants with pockets, which puts me on the male side, unfortunately. <laughs> right, that's me. Um, before I introduce two of my friends, I wanna go through this concept, which is ambiguous versus specific they. So pronouns he refers to singular male, she is singular female, they is plural generally. And then for non-binary people, a lot of non-binary folks prefer they as their pronoun. That's the pronoun they want everyone to use. But then if you ever don't know, everyone just says they. And I like to use this trick to get yourself to end up using they more often. Because if you ever don't know someone's gender, uh, someone's pronouns, you can go with they and it's not wrong. It's English correct. Uh, and sometimes uh, what, yeah. If someone who's non-binary tells you my pronouns are they, them, that switches from the right column ambiguous they to the specific they. That was a, a realization for me when I noticed that. That's a thing that happens in my head. And then I, I'm sure it is a specific pronoun I can use. All right here, I'll tell you a little bit about my friend, Krista. Their pronouns are she, they. And that brings up a question. There's two pronouns, which one should I use? The answer is either they said either is okay, you can use either with them. But if you wanna know which one they prefer, if there's a slight preference between either one, that's a pretty good question. Some people have a slight preference, um, but they include both because it's easier for like traditional older people to use the gendered one. But um, when I'm not sure I go with they, because that also signals like, I am willing to call you whatever you ask me to, even this less common, often harder to use one for a lot of people but I don't know. So I asked Krista, I also asked them if I could include them in my presentation and they said, yes, of course, I'm very public and I'd love to be, love to share this stuff about myself. And this is all from their Twitter profile. They're a geneticist, they're a saxophonist. I met them from the queer marching band in DC uh, where I play this orange trombone behind me. Uh, they're a bibliophile, ace. Ace here is short for asexual. They don't experience sexual attraction or they don't experience much sexual attraction. I didn't ask if it's zero or some, and it doesn't really matter to me. This is how they're trying to self-describe and I got it, they're ace. They're also gray row, which is short for gray romantic, meaning they're not zero. They're like something between zero and hundred for the average person. I don't know where, but anyway, that's what they want me to know. And they're queer, which probably means I'm not telling you every little nuanced detail of all these graphs, but it's, there's other stuff in there too, or just culturally queer like me. They also hang out in spaces like the band that has trans people and women and bisexual people and every letter is in that band. Very inclusive. Here's another friend of mine from the marching band, Avi, uses he, him pronouns. This is their Twitter profile. They say, I love rabbits, cheesecake, cute things. That's all stuff that comes up if you ever talk to him. He's a hacker, queer, trans, and non-binary. And he's also not listed here, but I know it is intersex. I think his intersex, um, the cause of it is the androgen non-sensitivity. Um, but I'm not sure, and it doesn't matter, and it's not core to his identity, and I don't need to know it to be able to treat him well and to understand where he's coming from. 
them. His context, like from that earlier diagram, his context is queer trans non-binary. That's what affects his life. That's what he wants us to know. And this last line, I want to ask him, I don't know what that means. I think he does um, white hat hacking and that might be related or is it a, something that rabbits would do? I don't know. Sometimes I accidentally might use the pronoun she or they with Avi. And then I have so much to say about how to recover from microaggressions, but that's another hour long workshop with practice involved. But what I do in short is I just correct myself. I say he, and I move on and I don't say anything else because it's not a big deal. And I meant to say he, and I'll say he next time. And I don't make a big deal about it. If I made a big deal about it, he would feel uncomfortable because this happens to him a lot. And he said, so he doesn't want to hear it. He just wants everyone to do better or at least just show that they care. All right, what about you? I'm gonna have you introspect. And this might be a little uncomfortable if you've never thought about these things and that's okay. I want you to take notes and think about it later. A lot of questions. How would you feel on a scale of hate it to love it, negative 10 to 10, if someone you know used the pronouns he, him on you? Super good, super bad, neutral? Kind of good, that's fine. Yeah, where are you? How about she, her? Super good, super bad, kind of good, kind of bad. Neutral, uh, they, them? Same question. For me, he, him might be like a two or three, I guess. Like it's good, sure, that's me. You got it right, no problem. She, her, it's like a negative one or two. Like I don't know that concerned, but if you're doing it on purpose, you're getting it wrong, come on. And they, them is like a one or two. Like, yeah, that's fine. If you're just doing the practicing the ambiguous one on me and you want to practice on me, it's fine by me. Some people though um, are really high in he, him and really low and she, her, like negative. Like don't use that pronoun on me, especially a trans person perhaps because they've been misgendered their whole life and they switched and they really want you to get it right. So if you are in the neutral and you don't get why people might have the strong negative positive feelings, that's okay. That's where a lot of people are but some people do. Whew, I've got five more of these. This is deep stuff. How would you feel if you, for whatever reason, had to dress up in a traditionally male way? Like someone on the street you'd see who's clearly a man addressing in a traditional male way. Would you love dressing that way? Hate it, it's kind of fine. How does it change if it's a female way? I don't want to dress in a female way. I don't want to wear any dresses, but I do want to dress in an androgynous way. So for me, androgynous is probably higher than male. I don't want to wear boots and camo ever. That is not my style. This is called gender expression. So it's how you are reflecting your gender to the world through your clothing and makeup and how you make yourself look. And it might match or not match your gender identity depending on your preferences or the day. Some people it changes over time. Next one. Do you feel more male or more female on a scale of 10 to 10? I don't want a negative either of them here. <laughs> like. On the male side or the female side, do you feel like super, super masculine or super, super feminine or kind of in the middle, neither really, or halfway, where are you? And then another question, this one's kind of weird for people sometimes. If this last question made you say like, yeah, I know I'm here and that feels right and good, then the gender binary applies to you pretty well. You might have a strong attachment to it. But if you're like, I don't even like this question. I don't really think about myself on a gender binary. That is um, maybe non-binary, or I think even that's a spectrum in my numbers and charts approach to this. It's like, how attached are you to the gender binary? Nope, 
or yeah, this is fine. That's its own spectrum. For me personally, I'm, I don't know, halfway. I do, being male doesn't really reflect me that well. It's not a great proxy measure for things about me, like how aggressive I am or the things I like or don't like. It doesn't reflect that for me much at all. Whew. Next one, how sexually, not romantically, they might be different for you, they might not be. Are you attracted to someone presenting as male or presenting androgynous, you really can't tell, or someone presenting as female? negative 10 to 10, or any repulsive to you, or any super attractive to you, or any in the neutral. And same question for romantically. Is there any difference there? For some people, there really is a big difference. Uh, like my friend Krista distinguished between, uh, what was it, asexual and gray romantic. So for them, it's like, they're different. Culture change. Culture change. So you all are on board with me, I hope. So you want to understand people who are affected by microaggressions, um, people who are affected by those things, and you wanna understand them as individuals and you wanna understand them in their context, like that diagram. And now you know a little bit more, hopefully about the context that queer people are in, at least what the variables are in the first place. So if you talk about it, you might be able to remember some of them a little better. Um, so how do we change culture to make a welcoming environment for these people? Pronouns is a one good one. So if I, I didn't notice earlier, and as a presenter, you can't say anyone's name. Isn't that weird? But uh, some people here probably have pronouns in your Zoom name. If you are, you might be an innovator or, or early adopter for this group. And some people who, like everybody in the company is doing it. 90% of people are doing it, but some people aren't. They might be considered a laggard in the adoption of this. This um, adoption lifecycle is often used for things like technology, like the iPhone. I had an, an early iPhone. I was probably an early adopter. And my mom's best friend, who's 80 years old, is definitely a laggard. She's using a flip phone still, not using it. Uh, the cool thing about this and how it applies to pronouns is even at the stage where early adopters and innovators are doing, um, putting pronouns out actively and proactively, making the environment one that has pronouns in the air, that changes the environment entirely. So if someone else wants to or needs to, to self-express so that people get their pronouns right, if even 10% of people are doing it, it changes the environment. It's not surprising anymore. Like, uh, are you surprised if someone ever has red hair? that's only a small percentage of the population. Or if someone's left-handed, schools even accommodate for that with the left-handed desks. Some schools do. Anyway, it doesn't need 100% of people. And if you just put your pronouns somewhere publicly or share them proactively, it can change the feeling of the entire group. A group of 10, one person is 10%. All right, um, some techniques for getting pronouns shared in your organization more. One is in a profile like Slack. And if it doesn't give you a pronoun field, you can put it in your name. It's not that surprising. People see it and you want it to be not that surprising. That's what your, your goal is here is to help it be less surprising. If you have a name tag, I'm really bad at this one. I always just write my name in big letters. I'm very proud. I'm Casey Watts. And I don't leave room for the pronoun until afterwards. I have to like squeeze it in. I'm trying to get better at remembering to put it there. If you host events with name tags, um, consider having an example one. And that would really help people get the pronouns on there too. Another one is introductions to include it. So as you go around introducing who's who, uh, make sure the first person or two sets the standard. You can plant them. And then everybody in the circle is much more likely to do it. Or you can require it. Requiring is tricky though, because 
some of the laggards could be people who don't want to share their pronouns. Maybe they're, they're changing their outward facing identity to match who they are and they don't want to do it at work. And you don't want to force those people to do that thing they're uncomfortable with. Or if there's someone who it doesn't affect them directly, they're just being stubborn. You don't want to make them angry about it either. We don't need 100%. 90% would be amazing. You don't even need 90%. So it's honestly, I think it's fine to have the laggards in this situation. Not, not everyone's going to have the iPhone or smartphone. Whew. For a friend you have, how can you get better at using their correct pronouns? Uh, one trick that helped me a lot is to use their pronoun in every sentence structure. So you have to use he, him, and his, and there are other, other forms I'm sure that I'm not thinking of. Um, and then every type of sentence is a new thing you have to relearn. Flashcards help with that. There are a lot of online flashcards, pronoun flashcards you can type into Google. There's 15 of them. I don't know which ones are good lately. I used one 10 years ago a lot when they, them was becoming more popular. Also any techniques you use to remember someone's name apply to pronouns too. And then if you make a mistake, recover gracefully, just correct yourself and move on. And I got a whole nother workshop about that. I'm not gonna go into that today. Um, one other thing I like to call out about pronouns while we're on the topic is, have you noticed we don't include Mr. or Miss or Mrs. in email signatures anymore? Most people don't. That's how we used to know what someone's pronouns were and now it's gone. And that framing has helped me convince some older, more conservative people understand why we need pronouns in names in signatures because that it's gone but in, in the meantime it's fine for us if we can, want to be respectful we can get around it by using the ambiguous they but you know a lot of people still don't like that too just some context for you mr and miss are gone and i'm thankful because i don't care about the formality of it but i do miss having their pronouns available so i would know what to use but I think we're even in an even better spot now because they, them, and other pronouns that aren't he, she, or they are also available. On this week's segment of Women Who Code Conversations, we have Garima Saxena, Assistant Vice President at EXL. She'll be talking about her 13 years of experience in furnishing data insights, analytics, and visualization to drive business and boost revenue in a number of health-related fields. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. My name is Damilola Olipoju. I'm a software engineer and I'm also a director at Miracle Lagos. Here with me, I have Garima, Garima Sassina. And Garima is a young, dynamic, and new age professional in the exciting space of analytics. She's someone who has significant value based experience on level years experience. Also as an adaptive global mindset, working with clients all across the world. So we'll be having an interview with Garima. Garima, hi. Hey, hi. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having you. And thanks for everything. So uh, we jump right back into the question right now. Uh, so I would like to ask you, can you tell us more about your career journey in tech? Sure. Thank you. Thanks for that question. And thanks for having me here. Uh, so I started about my journey. I started as an analyst and have grown to be an assistant vice president within EXL. In this entire journey of 12 years, I have gotten the opportunity to work into multiple domains. I started with pharma, uh, then utilities, then insurance, then retail, and now in healthcare. Um, 
in this 12 years of my journey with EXL, I have also got the opportunity to work in multiple projects which range from, you know, prescriptive, predictive and descriptive. So I'm very lucky in that regard. I have spent a fair amount of time in two geographies precisely. One is India. Of course, uh, starting seven years of my career, I was in India. And now uh, for the past six years, I am in the US. So that's about me. And in this journey, I enjoy being flexible. And when I say flexible, meaning I have been assigned with different roles and responsibilities. I've been an individual contributor at times. And I have also been, uh, you know, team lead, played the role of team lead uh, when when need uh, arises. So it's been, to sum up, it's been a journey of being an analyst when engagement manager. Wow, that's nice. 11 years experience. That's a nice job. And I would like to ask you, tell us more about your role at EXL. What you do day to day? Sure. Thank you. So right now, uh, if you ask me, I'm leading a team of 25 analysts and they are uh, some of them are based out of India and few of them are in the US. Uh, so when I say I manage, so that comes down to my roles and responsibilities and my day-to-day activities. So I manage, I do people management, I do account management, I do client and stakeholders management. I several times have to conduct trainings, which include both domain as well as technical trainings for my team. I take care of my team and at the same time, take care of the deliverables for my team. So I review them. I'm the delivery uh, lead in that sense. I groom the team. At the same time, if there is an, any opportunity for expansion for EXL, so I am uh, highly involved in the business development uh, initiatives for EXL, you know, so that I can help and contribute in some fashion for uh, uh, for EXL to grow. I also bring in, uh, you know, right talent for the right positions by conducting several interviews. So that's precisely my uh, roles and responsibilities right now. And nice. Um, EXL is a global company. What are the challenges you face being an assistant vice president of EXL and how do you overcome them? Yeah, so the biggest challenge I would say was, uh, you know, since I have worked with diverse cultures and diverse people and diverse geographies. So the biggest culture challenge was to keep everyone motivated and dedicated towards a common goal and especially more so when there is a stringent time, you know, of deliverance. So uh, I was working with my team of, I think, eight or nine members at that time. And we had to deliver something for the client within very stringent timelines. And I was very lucky to get a very supportive and adaptive team who was who were very kind and flexible enough to stretch their working hours to meet those deliverables. We successfully delivered, actually, the project. And for that project, we got a lot of accolades from the client. So that was one of the challenges which we overcome successfully through, you know, efforts of everyone in the team. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, what would you say if other women who might want to follow a similar direction as you? What has helped you to get to where you are as an assistant vice president at ESL? Sure. So my advice to them would be, you know, uh, be fearless and follow your passion. Don't do what others tell you to do. Do what you feel passionate about. You know, be the best version of yourself in whatever you do. Be it any any field, you know, it's it's general for everywhere, not just in tech, everywhere for everyone. Always keep learning and growing because, you know, to keep your skills up to date is absolutely needed in every field. Now coming specifically to um, analytics and my role, what I have done and speaking somewhat technically, 
into analytics, you have to be at least good in one of the programming languages, be it SAS, R, SQL, Python, whatever, you know, whatever works for you. Uh, usually, you have to be statistically sound. You should have knowledge of statistics. You know, the more, the better. You should be excited and passionate about data. You know, you should be excited about it. You should be able to deep dive into the data, see the underlying trends and generate helpful insights for the business or whatever industry you are in to help them make uh, take strategic decisions because that will eventually boost their revenue and help. That's, that, that's so insightful. And I would like to ask you, why is inclusion and diversity important in workplace, especially in tech? Oh, that's a very good question, actually. Because the world we live and work in is full of diversity, you know, and is full of innovation. So to be successful in such a world, we need to create an environment where diversity of thought is cherished. We need to create a leadership profile which represents the world we live in, uh, work, where everyone should be feel included, should be uh, should be feeling included and valued. This should provide a platform for everyone to grow up to their uh, and flourish to their full potential, where everyone should enjoy working with differences and know that differences make us grow. And um, having spent my twelve years of my career in Excel, I can proudly say that Excel provides that sort. Of platform to everyone be it men and women but being a woman i can proudly uh, boast for amazing so uh as an expert in analytics how would you describe the role of analytics in data-driven decision making especially at your company axl again a very good question uh because you know there is a saying that you cannot manage what you cannot measure so uh, right now data is the leader Analytics help to generate key insights and to uh, find out uh, more about it. So data is the leader. And that's the reason why you see so many openings or job openings coming up into data science or analytics, you know, which are highly paid. Because everyone, every company is now investing into the data because they have realized the potential of it. And EXL is no different from what is happening across the world, you know. EXL's analytic vertical has itself increased year by year and is the major contributor for growth. And EXL is doing a lot of acquisitions as well uh, and is highly invested in it. So that is the role of data and analytics, right? So it's going to be the future. Data is the lead. Okay, nice. Mm -hmm. So I was, <clears throat> what, are you, what are you passionate about outside your working day? What, are you, what do you love doing outside your work day? Mm, I enjoy traveling. You know, okay. I enjoy meeting new people, exploring new places, meeting people of different culture, getting to know their culture. You know, that is my uh, favorite thing outside of work. I also spend time, uh, enjoy spending time with my six-month-old daughter. Nice. So, um, and if I know, uh, what advice would you give women who are coming to tech? Oh, yeah. My, actually two advices I would like to give to women. One is never give up. Be the change you want to see, basically. So you should never give up. When I say never give up, never give up on anything. Be it learning opportunities, be it leadership opportunities, be it technical opportunities, be it any project. Never give up. Try everything, you know, what comes your way. So that is my first advice. The second advice is take calculated risks whenever is necessary. Because, you know, you have to turn every stone in your way as a stepping stone for success to catapult your career. So take calculated risks uh, because risk with risk comes a lot of opportunities as well. Keep that in mind. Wow. Try everything. Just 
I like I like that advice. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. And we hope when you call you hold some other time, we'd love to hear from you. And I feel like every other person watching this, they'll be so inspired. We know what you do. I think we could and we wish you all the very best in your career going forward. I would love to be like someone like you one day. And thank you so much. Thank Thanks. you. I wish you all the best and I wish that all your dreams come true. I wish you all yes. the best in your career. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jimmy Gary, man. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening and remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.